Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. Last week we started in Jonah. And Jonah is part of the people of God. He's in the northern kingdom of Israel who was enemies with Assyria. And God calls Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh, a city in Assyria, that their evil has come up against God and that he is going to bring judgment against Nineveh in Assyria unless they repent. And Jonah is called to go and give them this opportunity to grasp on to the mercy of God. But Jonah doesn't want to go because Jonah is all about his people. And he doesn't want to go to the enemy of his people. He doesn't want to give them an opportunity to repent. He just wants God's judgment against the Ninevites. And so what does Jonah do? Jonah runs. Jonah runs from the presence of God, and he runs down from the northern kingdom of Israel to a port city called Joppa, and there he finds a boat that's going to Tarshish. And you'll remember the map from last week. He was supposed to go right, and he went left down to Joppa. He got on a boat and was heading all the way to the left side of the map to Tarshish. We believe it's probably the furthest possible place he could go from Nineveh. And he goes down into that boat, and what happens? He falls asleep, and God sends a storm. Out of God's mercy, God sends a storm to get Jonah's attention, because even as Jonah is running away from God, God is running him down. God is running him down. And when the sailors figure out that the storm is there because of Jonah, Jonah offers himself as a substitute, and he's thrown overboard. And the storm does calm down. And the sailors realize that Jonah's God is the one true God, and they worship Jonah's God rather than their own gods. And the irony we see in chapter 1 is that even though Jonah had run away from telling others about his God, his God had used his running to bring others to himself. Just as the storm, though, is lifted up, Jonah is sinking down, down, down into the depths of the ocean. And where we left off last week and where we'll start this week is that God has appointed a big fish, a big fish to come and swallow Jonah up whole and save Jonah from drowning. And I know, a big fish swallowing a man whole and preserving, being preserved in his belly, I get it. It sounds crazy, and it does. And it's really, it is meant to sound crazy. But let me suggest a few things. As we read this story, and you have trouble with the big fish, first of all, the bigger question is, does God exist? Because if you answer that question, then anything is possible. If God exists, he's not confined to the natural realm because he is a supernatural spirit, and he can enter in and change things in whatever way he wants to. He can preserve a man in the bottom of the ocean in the belly of a fish if he exists because he's God and we're not. But then secondly, this miracle is actually a smaller miracle to the great miracle of the Bible, which is the resurrection of Jesus. And that's a better, that's a better miracle to wrestle with because if that miracle is possible, then any other thing is possible. But this story isn't really 
about the whale. The whale only appears in three verses. This story is first and foremost about mission, mystery, and mercy. And this particular chapter in this story is about Jonah's hitting bottom and looking up. It's about Jonah's hitting bottom and looking up. And before we read the text, I'm going to pray. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for this story that is meant to teach us and instruct us and ultimately point to you. And even as we see Jonah's full belly, or the full belly of the fish, we're reminded of the empty tomb. If this miracle uh, is possible, it was only possible because God exists and because you have risen from the dead. But in light of that, we want to be transformed by your power because if you are risen from the dead, then you have the power not only to preserve a man and a fish, but also to change hard hearts like ours. And really, that's what this story is about. We pray that you would take us deeper in our understanding of our running from you and open our eyes to how big your mercy for us really is. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, It says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside. Where? Sheol. You heard my voice. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and billows swept over me. But I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more towards your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck, and the watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head, and I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gate shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to who? To the Lord. Have you ever hit rock bottom? Oh, there was a lot of yeses there. Have you ever hit rock bottom? Have have you ever sunk down so far where everything felt like it was closing in on you and there was no hope? Where maybe your whole life fell apart or maybe it was just one particular situation that it felt like that fell apart. And whatever it is, whether it was your whole life or whether it was one situation, you felt like you were hitting bottom. Most of us have been there on some level or another, but what was it that brought you to the bottom? What was it that caused you to sink down? Was it something that you did, or was it something that was done to you? What did you do when you hit bottom? When you were at the end, what did you do? Did you pray? Did you pray? And did you pray believing that God would hear you? Jonah has hit bottom. He's at the bottom of the sea. From the language that he's using, 
he is literally going down, down, down like an anvil to the bottom of the ocean. He says that the waters are closing in. He seems to be wrapped in sea vegetation. What he's seen, he calls the roots of the mountains. In other words, he's seen where the, the mountains from high up are descending down into the sea. He has reached the bottom because, not something that was done to him, but because he had been running from God. Because he had been running from God, his circumstances at the bottom were brought about by his choices to get out of the the presence of God, and he seems to have done that. He says this phrase, he says, I'm in Sheol, Sheol. And in Hebrew thought, Sheol was this place of death and spiritual darkness and separation from God. And Jonah believes that he is there in Sheol. It's ironic because when Jonah was running away, the very thing that he was trying to get away from is the presence of God. Three times in chapter one, it says Jonah is running away from the presence of God, and now he's there in Sheol, away from the presence of God. He's run away from his call, away from God's mission. He seems to have gotten away from God's presence. Good job, Jonah. You got exactly what you wanted. And there you are in Sheol at the bottom of the ocean with everything closing in around you. You wanted space? You got it. How does it feel, Jonah? Jonah's there and realizes the choices and the consequences of his choices and that now he feels he is beyond God's reach in Sheol beyond God's presence, beyond God's mercy, he has hit bottom. He has hit bottom. And yet, though it feels like he's beyond God's reach, though it feels like he's outside of God's mercy, he is not. He is not beyond God's reach. He has not run out. He has not outrun God's mercy. He has been allowed in God's mercy to hit hit rock bottom and feel like he's outside of God's mercy. But in God's mercy, Jonah is getting to experience the consequences of the very thing that he wanted. It's a severe mercy in a sense, where God is trying to get Jonah's attention by letting him run away because that's what Jonah wanted to do. And it's often when you and I hit rock bottom that the mercy of God becomes most clear and most precious. When we see the consequences of our running, it is when the mercy of God becomes most precious to us. And at that moment when Jonah hits bottom is when he looks up. When he looks up in prayer. In verse 2 and 3, Jonah starts off his prayer by calling out to the Lord in distress, wondering, will the Lord hear me? Will the Lord answer me? I'm at the bottom because of my own rebellion against him. Will the Lord hear me when I pray? And I know that when you pray, you probably wonder the same thing. You wonder if God hears you. You wonder if anybody's there. When you hit bottom and you look up, you wonder if God's mercy will come down. I'll tell you the time that I feel the most frustrated about whether I am heard or about whether someone will answer me is when I need help and I make a phone call and I get an automated voice menu. 
you will see a nice pastor go to very angry very quickly because I need help, and I need someone to hear me, and I need an answer. But what I get is, for English, say one. Para espanol, diga dos. And you know that you've got to get it right. Somehow you just became anxious about saying one. And so with your lips puckered right, you say one into the phone. And what happens? I'm sorry, I didn't understand you. For English, say one. Per espanol, diga dos. And then you're like, did I learn how to say that right in kindergarten? Have I been saying the, the, the word one wrong all my life? And you say it again, but with a little bit of an edge this time, right? You want to be heard. You want an answer. One. I can't get it right. I feel so hopeless when that happens because I need help. And when I cry out, I want to be answered. I want to be heard. And when you call an automated voice menu, it does not answer, and you are not heard. But when you cry out to God, he does hear you. He does answer. Whether you get it right or not. And Jonah, in the midst of sinking down, is looking up in prayer, and he says that God answers him. I cried out for help from the deep inside Sheol. Even in Sheol, the Lord hears his voice. But what's interesting about Jonah crying out and looking up in prayer is his prayer is not just a, God, I hit bottom. I need you to get me out. It's more than that. Jonah's prayer is, I hit bottom, and I know I need to turn around. I know that I need to turn around. See, in God's mercy, God is trying to get Jonah not just to look up in prayer, but to turn around and run back to God. God is calling Jonah to repentance. Repentance, we've used that word a couple times in this service, and it simply means to turn around. It simply means to do a 180-degree turn. I was going this way, and I'm going that way. And a lot of people get confused about the word repentance because it sounds like the word penance. And penance is not repentance. Penance is, I did something bad, so now I got to do something good to get in good standing with you. That's penance. That's not biblical. Repentance is biblical. Repentance is not doing something. It's turning to someone. It's not doing something good to get back in God's good graces. It's turning back to God and walking in newness of life with him. It's where Jonah stops running and turns back to God. And his prayer is not just a prayer of trying to get out. It's a prayer of turning back. And we see that, first of all, because Jonah submits to God's pursuit of him. Jonah says, it was you, God, that threw me overboard. Now, we knew last week when we read the story that it was actually the sailors who threw Jonah overboard. But Jonah recognizes that God's hand was in that moment trying to get his attention. And rather than being angry about it, Jonah submits to it because he's turning back to God and he's turning back to God's perspective. He recognizes God's pursuit of him in his running. Jonah submits 
to God's pursuit of him. But then secondly, Jonah specifically repents. Look what it says in verse four. But I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. Jonah has gotten that space that he wanted from God, but he finds himself in Sheol. And then it says, yet I will turn to the temple. I read that this week, and I I thought, why did he say the temple? Why why would he say that he's turning specifically to the temple? And then it dawned on me what the story's trying to communicate. Because three times in chapter 1, it says that Jonah is running from the presence of the Lord. And although God is present everywhere, his special presence dwells where? In the temple. And so Jonah is turning to the temple as a way of saying, I am specifically repenting from the very action that I was heading towards. I was trying to get away from the presence of God. Now I'm going to specifically turn towards the presence of God. You see, his repentance matches his running. His repentance matches his running, and he repents specifically. One of the phrases that I love in our doctrinal statement is, says that we as Christians are called to repent of our particular sins particularly. Particular sins particularly, our specific sins specifically. Repentance is different than confession. Confession is, I agree with you, I see my sin But repentance is turning away from those sins and turning to God. And where we were building our life around running from him in a particular area, now we build our life around God in that particular area. That happens when we first come to Christ and we make a 180-degree turn. We say, I was going this way, now I'm going this way, I'm walking with you, God. And we see this in places like the story of Zacchaeus, where Zacchaeus is a tax collector who has defrauded hundreds and hundreds of people of their money. And Jesus comes to him and says, Zacchaeus, I want to go over to your house today. And he's calling calling Zacchaeus in a relationship with him. He's calling Zacchaeus to follow him. And what does Zacchaeus say next? Well, his repentance specifically matches his running. Zacchaeus says, I will give half of what I have to the poor, and anyone that I have defrauded, I will pay back four times. Now, he's not doing penance. He's doing repentance. In other words, he has built his life around greed and thievery. And now that he's walking with Jesus, he's going to live a lifestyle of generosity and restoration. Jesus has already given him relationship. He's not trying to earn relationship with Jesus because Jesus has already told Zacchaeus that he's coming over to his house. And Zacchaeus responds with repenting of his particular sins particularly and walking in a new way of life with Jesus. And that kind of 180-degree turn happens when we first come to Jesus, but it also should happen every day in our lives as Christians. Every day should be filled with little turns back to the Lord where we realize that we're living in rebellion against him. We should be getting better and better at being more particular and particular and specific with our repentance of internal attitudes that don't line up with who God is, of patterns of action or areas where we do not trust God or or 
patterns in our life where we give something a priority over God. Those are all areas that as we grow, we will see more clearly and there are opportunities for us to repent of our particular sins particularly. Just like Peter. Peter, who had been walking with Jesus for three years, and the night before Jesus went to the cross, Peter let his heart run to what the opinions of others thought of him rather than loyalty to the Lord. And when someone asked, Peter, are you with Jesus? Three times, Peter says, no, I'm not. But Peter's repentance matches with his rebellion because after Jesus rises from the dead, he sees Jesus on the beach, and what does Peter do? He jumps off the boat that he's in and swims in towards Jesus. And in his restoration, he makes a public commitment of loyalty to Jesus and his mission when he had abandoned Jesus publicly. See, in that moment, even though Peter has been walking with Jesus three years, his repentance matches his running. He repents of his particular sins particularly. Repentance is such a big part of the Christian life, and we, we don't like to say that word. I'll, I, the first time I remember hearing that word, I was on the campus of Auburn University, and there was this guy in a suit out in this field that we all walked by yelling, repent! And it just turned everybody off. But just because someone talks about repentance in the wrong way doesn't mean it's not part of the Christian life. In fact, Jesus, when he comes on the scene, one of the first things he says is, Repent. In Mark 1, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. What does he say? Repent and believe the good news. He's calling people into a newness of life with him. And as Christians, not one of us is perfect and we will not be made perfect until the Lord returns, which sets us up for a lifelong process of turning back to the Lord every day. Jack Miller says that God never promised to transform us into super-Christians who would never again sin and never again need to repent. We mess up all the time, which is why every Sunday we have a time of confession. That time is not here to make you feel bad about yourself. That is an opportunity for you to turn back to the Lord in an area of your life and find new life in him. It's part of the rhythm of being a Christian that we identify areas where we're running and we turn back to him. And it should become just a regular part of our Christian life. Christina Edmondson puts it this way. Christians are repenters. We are Repenters, and we don't just repent once in a big, extravagant, ta-da way. No. I love that she says that, because that's how we tend to think of it. We live a life of chronic, compulsive repentance. If you haven't already repented today, you're probably overdue. (laughs) This is who we are. It's not that Christians are perfect people. It's not that Christians do not have racist and sexist, and greedy people, and gossipy people among them, of course, what makes us different is that we repent. What makes us different is that we are learning to repent. See, we like to say a lot of times no one's perfect. But the other side of that, of not being perfect, is that we turn back to the Lord when we see how imperfect we are. 
right? It's not just leaving that, oh, no one's perfect. It's like, no, you're heading away from God in your imperfection. Turn back to the Lord who loves you and wants to show mercy to you and change you and walk in newness of life with him. And the Lord loves it when we repent. I mean, the greatest story of repentance is the prodigal son in the book of Luke. And you get this picture of God as the father who's waiting for his son to turn back and come home. And when he sees him, he runs towards him and showers him with love because he loves that he came home. And repentance is like us coming home to God, not just when we first believe, but every day. Well, Jonah's looking up is a prayer, but it's a prayer of repentance. It's a, it's a prayer of turning back specifically. And God hears his prayer, and God answers him, and God sends what? A great fish. A great fish to swallow Jonah up. And Jonah's prayer that's recorded here is him praising because he's been swallowed up by a fish in the belly of a fish with everything else that's in there. God heard him, and maybe this wasn't how he wanted to be saved, but it is how God showed him mercy, and it is how God saved him. And Jonah is, not del- is delighting in the mercy of God, even though it's probably not the first way that he wanted to be saved. But he knows it's the mercy of God because he doesn't deserve anything but to be at the bottom of the ocean, and so anything is better than that, and anything that God does is mercy. And it makes me think that sometimes when we cry out for mercy and it doesn't look the way we want it to, that maybe we need to think again. God doesn't owe us anything, and his job is not to give us the life we want, yet in his grace, he shows us mercy. God is not interested in a limited invitation into our lives on our terms to give us the life that we want. He wants you to have all of him, and he wants to have all of you. And when you run from that, he's still committed to bring you back by mercy. And though we, none of us have the exact life that we want, maybe the life you have right now is a little bit like Jonah in the belly of the whale. Maybe it is a little bit of God's mercy keeping you, maybe not where you want to be, but saving you from something else. And so Jonah isn't angry at God because he sees the fish as the mercy of God. And he knows that in the belly of that fish, that is salvation by the hand of God. We hope you're inspired by God's word. What have you learned so far? As you listen, pray about applying it to your life. Let's continue in God's word. Well, it's at this point that Jonah says something so profound. It's so profound that he doesn't even realize how profound it is. And it might be the greatest lesson in the entire book of Jonah, maybe one of the most important verses. In verse 8, he says, Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. And the way that this version words it is kind of confusing. So I like what the ESV says. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. 
Jonah's talking about idolatry, and an idol is a false god that plays itself up as God to get you to trust it. It can be a false deity that's represented with pictures or statues, or it can be just a good thing that we make into an ultimate thing, a good thing that we build our life around and worship as our God. And Jonah is talking about those things and talking about what it looks like when you pay regard or you cherish it or you build your life around it. It's those things in our life that we say, I can lose everything but fill in the blank. And if I lose that, I'm in trouble. But what Jonah says about those idols is that they're vain and empty. In other words, we think that they can function as God but they do not have the power to sustain us like God does. Ian Thomas says that idols always overpromise and underdeliver. They overpromise and underdeliver. So Jonah has been wanting autonomy from God. He's been pursuing that as his idol, and he's got it. And where does it leave him? Autonomous from God at the bottom of the ocean. It's interesting how Jonah talks about the vain idols. He says that those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. He doesn't say God withdraws his love. He says that those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. They abandon their hope in God's love. It isn't God who withholds his love from us. It's us who back away from God's committed love to us. When we pursue idols, when we take good things and make them God, we can become so compulsive and anxious about just getting them. I just need a little bit more. I just, I just need it. And yet we forget what we are letting go of. I want life on my terms. I just got to get life on my terms. And in that very moment, we're letting go of God and his love for us. I've just got to have that relationship. I got to go back to that relationship, even though it, it's dysfunctional and I know the Lord doesn't want me there, but I've got to have life with it because I can't factor life without it. And in our compulsion and in our anxiety, we forget that the Lord loves us no matter how dysfunctional we get. And as we go through life and we go, I need more. I want more. Life's not good unless I get more and our, our hearts are hungry and never satisfied. We forget the satisfying love of God for broken people like you and me. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. See, in getting what you want, you might be giving up the only thing that you had going for you. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And we've seen what happens in the opposite of that. The sailors have abandoned their false gods and have abandoned their idols. And what did they experience? Salvation. God saved them by his steadfast love. When they turned him, God saved them from the storm. And Jonah, in his running, he had been running away from the only thing he had going for him, which is God's love and mercy. And so he comes to this point where he realizes 
how great God's mercy is. And at the end of the chapter in verse 9 and 10, he says there in the second line, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Jonah had sunk down, and when he looked up, God's mercy had come down, and the, the fish spits him out. And Jonah has this unbelievable experience of God's mercy where he yells out, salvation is from the Lord. But I wish the story kind of ended there. God's mercy has not gone down deep enough into the heart of Jonah. See, when Jonah yells, God saves, that phrase is the very thing that will make him angry in chapter 3 and 4. When he receives mercy, he's happy. When he goes and tells the Ninevites to repent, and they do, and they receive God's mercy, he's angry. Mercy for me, but not for you. Jonah has not truly grasped the mercy of God. There's something in him that still thinks he's superior and he's deserving of God's mercy and grace. And those people in Nineveh, the enemy of my people, they don't deserve an opportunity to experience the mercy of God because they're not like me. He gets it on one level, but he doesn't truly grasp it. His repentance still needs to go deeper. And it should make us ask, how do we grasp the mercy of God? Like, how do we grasp it in a way that we don't miss it like Jonah did? And I think that's a lifelong process, but I think there's also something that we can root here in the text as we close. Jonah points his gaze towards the temple. And the temple ultimately points to the cross. The temple was a, a place of sacrifice where atonement was made for sin. Animals died in the place of sinners, and the cross was the final sacrifice where Jesus Christ gave his life. His blood was shed to reconcile you and me to God, to bring atonement for our sins so that God would go from judge to father. And Christ Jesus died on that cross to bring people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue into the family of God. And I think our lives are meant to be daily turns back to the cross, to see afresh the mercy of God for sinners like you and me. And as you and I turn back and repent every day, what we see is not limited mercy, but unlimited mercy through the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's you, as you and I begin to grasp that, that it goes deeper, deeper, deeper into our hearts. And we realize how undeserving we were of what Jesus has done for us. And that fills us up with love that we might reach the very people that we're enemies with. If I didn't deserve God's mercy, then they don't either, but I get to be the person who brings it to them. And so maybe it's a call for us to 
take the act of repentance more seriously in our lives, to turn not in penance, but in repentance every day and see the fresh mercy of God for us on the cross. And as we grasp the cross and grasp the mercy of God, we will have more mercy to give for everyone, even those we believe do not deserve it because we do not deserve it. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.